this is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, it's Ben. This is a Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Nice to have you along. Hope you're doing all right. How's it all going? Okay, well, that isn't too bad then. This week I've got the fantastic Adam Ferguson on the podcast and I'm really looking forward to bringing you uh, that chat in a minute. If you want to just hold tight a minute, I will do the introduction as usual after a few little messages. First of all, uh, my loyal sponsor, Charcoal Book Club, I have opened the call for entries for the 6th Annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize. You should already know about this if you've been listening to the last few episodes. Um, so this uh, call for entries has been open for a while now, but the 2022 speakers include Matt Black, Sabia Chimen, Jason Eskenazi, Mona Kun, Rahim Fortune and Mimi Plum. Also featured reviewers include Katie Grannon, Todd Heido, Polymy Basu, High Museum Art, Time Magazine, Milwaukee Art Museum, Deadbeat Club Press, Red Hook Editions, Yoffi Press, TIS Books and many more. If you aren't familiar, the Chico Review is a juried photo book retreat that takes place over six nights at Chico Hot Springs Resort near Livingston in Montana. 64 photographers will be selected by a jury and invited to spend the week taking part in portfolio reviews, artist lectures and panel discussions, as well as communing over drinks in the saloon and the hot springs and much more. At the conclusion of the event, one grand prize winner will be awarded the Charcoal Publishing Prize and have a book published and distributed worldwide by Charcoal Book Club. The application deadline is December the 26th, so you've still got plenty of time left to apply at chicoreview.com. And the only thing it doesn't mention here, and I think I should say, is that this is happening next March 2022. So it's happening in the month of March, as far as I can remember. But um, that's just an addendum to this little read. Please go to chicoreview.com for details. Don't forget to sign up for your exclusive fortnightly members-only episode Available on alternate Wednesdays in the month when there is no free main one. You can do that at pod.fan for £5 a month and get access to all sorts of fabulous exclusive content. Not available to non-members. You can also, at the same time, help with the production of this podcast financially, that is. So go to pod.fan if you feel like signing up. Or, you know, like if you are in need of a Christmas present, then maybe that would be a good one. £5 a month for a year or something from your loved one or gift that to the photographer in your life if there's another one. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, yeah, if you need a new website, tell me I'll make you one with Squarespace. It will be cheap. It will be brilliant. You won't have to worry. Everyone will win. And please do remember, if you've never left a review on iTunes, it's still not too late to go over to iTunes and drop off a nice glowing five-star review um, so that other people may find out about this podcast and enjoy it as much as presumably you do. Anyway, Adam Ferguson is an Australian freelance photographer. He was born and grew up in regional New South Wales in Australia before studying photography at the Queensland College of Art at Griffith University. 
After graduating, he travelled from port to port through the Caribbean and the Mediterranean as crew on a sailboat to fund the start of his photographic career, until in 2008 he flew to New Delhi on a one-way ticket and spent the next eight years based in Asia. Adam first gained recognition for his work in 2009 when he embarked on a sustained survey of the US-led war in Afghanistan, and since that time he's worked internationally contributing to the New York Times magazine, Time magazine and National Geographic among others. Much of his work focuses on conflict and on civilians caught amidst geopolitical forces, and in more recent years has also concentrated on climate change. Adam's portraits of various heads of state have appeared on numerous Time magazine covers and over the years he's been the recipient of awards from the World Press Photo, Pictures of the Year International, Photo District News, National Portrait Gallery of Australia and American Photography. His photographs have also been included in several solo and group exhibitions worldwide. Adam lives in Brooklyn in New York and is currently working on two monographs, a war diary of his time in Afghanistan and a survey of his home country's sparsely populated interior and its colonial legacy. So obviously I've known of Adam's work for a long time. I've always enjoyed it. I've always thought that he would be a great person to have on the podcast and fortunately we finally got that done. I'm so pleased. He's a, an absolutely lovely bloke. A photojournalist, a documentary photographer, a portrait photographer, does everything really and does it well. And yet yeah, he's a very kind of humble and down to earth guy. So I enjoy talking to him and I hope you enjoy listening. This is Adam Ferguson. Yeah. Mate, I'm going to drink a beer while I, uh, while I, while I talk to you. Uh, please do. It's a bit early for me. It's it's nine thirty a.m. So I'm, I'm I'm on day uh day ten of uh, my quarantine. Yeah. So yeah. I, uh, I I've turned to alcohol at this point just to kind of make the the nights feel a little easier. <laughs> Absolutely, I do not blame you one bit. So yeah. let's explain what's going on. So you are sitting in a hotel room in Sydney, Australia. I am Ben. I uh I flew from New York to Sydney ten days ago, and I'm was picked up by the military and dropped at a, a, a Marriott in Sydney and I'm in a 14-day quarantine. Yeah. And so how have you found it? Because, um, you know, I suppose we could say it's a, it's a first world problem, <laughs> but nevertheless, it is, uh, it is something to, you know, to have to endure and there, there must certainly be some challenges to it. Yeah, you're right. It, you, I can't really complain about it. It feels a little entitled. I am privileged enough to be able to fly across the world and and pay for a government quarantine so you know it is what it is but um you know to be honest the first week was almost like a a retreat you know i did a lot of reading and got a lot of work done and uh the 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 kind of isolation and lack of uh you know tangible real human interaction is has definitely starting to wear on me now and you know i'm looking forward to getting out of here i have a yeah. uh, i got lucky with a hotel room and i have a a view of the sydney harbour bridge and a uh i'm looking kind of west at the bridge and into kind of like the, the deeper parts of sydney harbour um hmm. and and what went from a, a beautiful view and i felt quite lucky at the start now i just feel like i'm kind of looking at something out of a fishbowl and i can't touch it yeah, like, yeah. maybe i'd be better off just having a concrete wall to stare at yeah and you're not you're not allowed out for fresh air at all, right? It's a total twenty four seven thing. Yeah, totally locked in. Uh, totally locked in the room. Uh, the window doesn't open because I'm on the twenty seventh floor, 
Um, I'm allowed to open my door three times a day to collect the food that they yeah. drop at the door. Yeah. Yeah, my partner went through the same thing, but she had a six-year-old with her, believe it or not. Um, not, not that, that then again, the, they did have the, the added benefit because of that, that they were allowed out into the fresh air for a, for a bit of sort of uh, exercise once a day. So that was a bit of a lifesaver. Well, depending um, on where you go, you're allowed to, uh, you get some fresh air. Like if you go into Darwin, you're out in the kind of scrub in a, in a yeah. camp kind of thing in, in small yeah, yeah. dongers and you have a balcony that you can sit on. Yeah, um, yeah, they were in Sydney, but they did have a balcony. But yeah, that right. was, you know. And um, are you? Do you have? Um, do you have friends in Sydney who are sort of dropping off uh, the booze and stuff and whatever survival uh, um, things you need? Yeah, I've had uh, I've had some some generous deliveries from uh, some some good friends. My mother. Um, I can order or also order food delivered. So, you know, mm. if I want, I can order. Uber Eats and have you know a yeah, pizza yeah. dropped off at the hotel if I want. So I'm not I'm not really uh, doing it that tough, you know. No, of course, yeah. of course. Um, yeah, and you probably be a, you know a couple of pounds heavier by the time you um, get out of there because you can't. I suppose you can exercise in the room to some extent, but you can't really. Well, move I actually feel like I'm going to leave a couple of pounds lighter because I rented an exercise bike and had it delivered ah. to the hotel. So. I've been riding for about two hours a day on uh, wow. on that. That's a smart myself move. N- nice and sweaty, and I, to be honest, I feel like if I didn't have the exercise bike, my my mental health would be in a much poorer state than it yeah. currently is. Yeah, no, that was yeah. that was a very smart kind of uh, piece of uh, kind of uh, foresight in a way to do that. Yeah, um, it's really nice to to have you join me. Been sort of immersing myself in your in your work over the last few days, and. Um, I've really been enjoying your your Substack um, blog, I suppose we would call it, uh, or newsletter. Um, I was really fascinated to talk to you about that, among other things, obviously. What prompted... Well, let's explain first. I mean, Substack is essentially a sort of platform, you know, intended primarily for, for writers to to sort of um, reach their audience directly. I suppose it's sort of like the journalistic equivalent of, of self-publishing your photo book in a way. And uh, it's something I only became aware of really quite recently. I think it is a relatively new thing. But you used it as a way to create your own really interesting blog whereby you, um, as you put it, throw the doors wide open and... Um, you know, it's 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 fascinating that um, you've yeah chosen to talk about your process in a in a very sort of granular way, and um, you know talk to other people and all sorts of stuff. What what prompted the decision to do that? Uh, ben, well, firstly, thanks for uh, thanks for showing interest, and thanks for reading, and thanks for noticing um, and having me on. Um, I think the Substack came out of uh, I was doing during the pandemic. I was doing one on one remote workshops. Um, and you know, I'd, I'd had a platform through a booking system through my website and advertised it a a small amount through Instagram and, and it started to feel like that reach was very limited and I'd spend an hour and a half, you know, looking at someone's work and, and kind of talking through that. And I, I, to be honest, I still do the, the occasional, um, workshop online, but, but I've, but, but not as many as I was doing, but I think what happened was it, it, the reach just felt so limited. I started to wonder, uh, I started to wonder how I could take what I know and kind of offer it to a larger audience. And I think, I think what happened is, you know, I, I don't have any kind of, you know, formal teaching background, but 
the response I was getting from the students that I was working with was was really kind of positive. Um, and all of a sudden I went, well, maybe I, you know, I'm not a teacher, but I have a lot of industry experience and I've been a photographer almost two decades and I'm, you know, I, I, do, I, I did study photography and I have all this kind of, you know, career insider knowledge and, you know, I think that's valuable for 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 younger photographers to to engage with and you know i obviously don't know everything and my work doesn't i'm sure doesn't appeal to everybody but there's definitely kind of stuff that i know which i think is valuable to a to younger artists and photographers and storytellers and i I just felt like it was time to kind of share that um yeah. 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 But not just, uh, you know, sharing the, the sort of nuts and bolts kind of um, experience and, and, and the, the insights into how you go about things, but also you're sort of you, you seem to be inherently quite a reflective person and, and you talk very honestly about your own sort of um, insecurities. You know, you did a whole post of how you fucked up a portrait, although I don't, I'm not sure you really did fuck it up that badly. I mean, it, was, it looked all right to me, but um, it was it was brilliant the way that you just um, you're sort of are you naturally drawn? to to being um you know reflective and 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 honest about those types of of you know human uh, foibles or or failings i think so i mean i think just being a you know a a practitioner of journalism or a you know a pseudo practitioner of of an art form of of photography uh i am reflective and I, i i i i wouldn't claim that i always have been but i think as i get older in my career i'm more reflective um but but i think the what I've tried to do in the in the Substack newsletter is kind of have an intersection of, you know, this kind of foundational, if you like, technical knowledge, um, paired with uh, the real life experience of how I executed that, paired with the the conceptualization that went into it, and then the output. So really, it's kind of like a um, an an a method conclusion. Uh, almost yeah. like a high school science experiment in a way <laughs> where I'm yeah. like trying to put all these different things together to make a narrative and I, I don't feel like I I ever really had that as a as a student or as a as a as a younger photographer I I saw you know great successes when I looked at monographs and exhibitions or magazine stories um, and you know I had education that was very much kind of founded in you know art theory and design theory but it, but it was always a hard thing to kind of bridge all these together. So I think in a way I'm trying to kind of bridge that whole arc of my career so a young photographer can, you know, read what I've done and not, not I, I don't make this so I give someone a formula to copy what I do, but I hope somebody reading the methodology and the technical approach and the theory and then my own kind of... Uh, my own process, personal process with that, uh, with that journey it, it is a way to kind of get, you know, younger photographers to kind of think about their own practice and the way they work mm. and make images and how they, mm. how they, how they pair up a, a lighting scheme with a, with a subject or think about the, the bigger picture themes behind the work they're creating. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then there really are, you know, there are insights to be gained by these sorts of, of um, you know, the sharing of such, as you say, experience. And um, yeah, I guess, you know, back before 
back in the day, maybe it was certainly when I was starting out, maybe even when you were, you're a lot younger than me, but those things weren't really available in the way that, that they are now. And it seems like, yeah, it's almost like a, you know, it is a masterclass really, but you know, you can, you can access those sorts of uh, insights and just to sort of be kind of quite granular about it. How does it work? Because I haven't signed up. Is there something I'm not getting that I would get if I were subscribing or is it just a sort of voluntary subscription thing? Cause I'm, I'm seeing most of your posts, um, but I don't know what I'm not getting as it were. Yeah. At, at the moment, uh, I'm putting everything out. So if you're, if you have a free subscription, you're getting everything that I do. Um, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, the Substack's been around, I think it's for four years now. And, mm. um, uh, you know, I've looked at, uh, you know, I've obviously spoken to Substack and I've looked at a lot of, uh, people that are successful on that platform. And as a kind of startup, uh, blogger, so to speak, um, it makes sense just to offer all my content for free. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. So at some point, um, what I'll do is, and this is kind of, I guess, a, a business strategy that seems to have worked for everybody else that, that works like this. At some point, I will start putting stuff behind a paywall when I feel like I need to to make it economically viable um, yeah, for, yeah. My, for, for my right. time. And then when that happens, people, I guess, are either forced to make a decision of uh, we enjoy Adam's insights so we want to support this work and they pay for it or they don't um and that's i guess will be a, right. a bit of an audience test when i when i hit that point yeah it'd be really interesting interesting experiment really because um you know if you've got a relatively large audience you've got 147,000 um followers on instagram so you know thinking about well even if uh, you know one percent or half a percent of those people signed up then you know that suddenly yeah it's kind of like there's some income there so it's a really interesting um a little sort of um yeah and a kind of an experiment i suppose and you're a good writer i like the like the way you present you know everything you know like as a photographer you know we're not all um we're not all writers but i like the way you write uh thank you you know it's been a it's been a experiment this whole thing i mean I didn't totally know what it was going to be when I started it. I mean, as I mentioned before, it was like a way to, you know, just offer some form of informal education to a wider audience. Uh, but, you know, as if as as you have, I'm sure, grasped from reading it, I, I, I keep changing directions, you know, like I, a few weeks ago, I kind of wrote really a piece of creative writing about, you know, the experience of meeting some Indigenous Australian women and, and spending time with them and... Other weeks are much more technical. Uh, some weeks I get a bit more conceptual. Uh, one week I wrote a love letter to photography. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think I definitely, I've noticed a, a, a response to the work that is personal and vulnerable. So, mm, mm. like, yeah, especially yeah. like the thing that I did yesterday where I, you know, I talked about, you know, failure. You know, it might be a, a, a relatively established photographer, but that doesn't mean you don't doubt your work and, have shoots that don't go as well as you um you would hope mm -hmm. they do and i think it's i think it's interesting to kind of just like you know pull back the curtain a little bit like that yeah no definitely because i think it's um for, for people who are sort of just starting out and you know they might might think that you know by the time you get to your stage uh you know everything's sort of seamless and um and uh all works out and it it doesn't always yeah, um no, it's and you know you battle yeah and you share i mean things things which seem to me invaluable insights where you you shared um a, a, a long post about the process of editing a, a a huge story you know um with your uh picture editor at time, uh, with, magazine, at yeah. time yeah 
Andrew Katz, yeah, and um, you know, you had it was a it was a hell of an undertaking because you had a very large number of images to to start with. But that was you know that's fascinating stuff. Anyway, we'll we'll kind of maybe we'll sort of touch upon these things um, more as we as we go. And obviously, I want to talk about why you why you are in a hotel room in Sydney because you live in New York and 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 um, you know you're obviously from Australia, but um, you haven't lived there for a while. But you're you're working on a on a project there, um, which I presume is why your back yes it is i'm uh, i'm i'm publishing a book actually with loose joints uh next year so i was supposed to finish this body of work in australia which is really a reflection on the colonial legacy uh in the australian bush and it's something i've been tinkering away at for a few years um but you know this pandemic has made it you know difficult to travel between australia and america um so i've been forced to kind of choose one at the moment and this book project uh, has pulled me back and also some family reasons. You know, I, I haven't seen my family for 18 months. I have a niece that I haven't met. Um, so, you know, it just felt like it, I needed to be on home soil for a while. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'll be out here for the next year working on my book. Okay, so you're going to be there for, for a whole year? For a year, yeah. Right, right. Well, I guess, you know, I'm sort of, I don't know if this is too vague a question, but how does it feel to, to, to come to come back there? Um, what are the sort of feelings that are, are prompted when you return to your roots, as it were? Yeah, Ben, I think I, uh, I mean, I, there's, a, there's a slight feeling of alienation, which is a little bit sad sometimes, because uh, I've, I've been an expatriate for uh, 17 years. Um, mm. And while I have definitely traveled home uh more frequently in the in the latter years of that 17 years i sometimes still feel like a little bit of a foreigner i have a i guess i have a perspective about my home country that i didn't have before and i i sometimes i don't i shouldn't maybe say this publicly but sometimes i get back and the kind of uh parochial nature of australian politics really kind of upsets me but you know i think we all have problems with our own kind of national politics, so maybe that's not just a a conflict that I have with Australia. No, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, you you're talking about this project. I'd like to unpack it a bit more. You know, you're sort of really focusing on the bush, the outback, I suppose, um, places which are quite remote. Um, you you spent your formative years in that sort of environment. Um, I think when you were very young, didn't you? When I was very young, yeah. I mean, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I was born in a in a regional town in Western New South Wales. Um, my grandmother was from a sheep farm, uh, sheep and wheat. Um, so I feel like that was not necessarily, you know, my direct experience growing up, but it was part of my kind of family history and, you know, also like ingrained in my family mythology in a way. Um, and I, I do have these very kind of strong impressionistic uh, memories of being a kid and being in this like small country town where my parents grew up in Yeovil, New South Wales. And then I moved away from that when I was 12 and moved to the coast because um, my father took a job on the coast. Um, so it's something that I, I, I feel like I, I need to unpack for myself. Um, I should backtrack a little bit and tell you why I started shooting this project. And yeah, I had do. spent, uh, I, you know, I covered the wars, the war in Iraq. I'd started 
uh, sorry, the war in Afghanistan. I started covering Iraq after 2010, after the U.S. troop withdrawal. And I had worked on a plethora of other stories internationally all over the world. And I hit a point in my career where I started to feel a bit personally and creatively bankrupt, touring through, uh, you know, foreign cultures, cultures that I didn't have a lot of ownership over. Um, and I started to really kind of run out of energy. And I knew that what I needed to do as a as a photographer, as a you know, I reluctantly call myself an artist, but as a as as a as a practitioner, as a storyteller, I needed to come back and tell a story about my own country in a way to kind of retain a sense of my own identity and to retain uh, some creative drive, I guess, mm-hmm. as well. So I made the decision to come back and work on a project in Australia, and it made sense to go out and start photographing areas which I identified with from a very kind of early stage mm. in my life and did you have the sort of themes of the project in mind to start with or did those sort of emerge and you just went out to sort of see what came up came up as it were they they it, i think it emerged and evolved over time i th- i started with just doing a few kind of road trips um it, it, and really not very fruitful road trips um but I was out trying to kind of photograph in regional communities um, in New South Wales. Then I went up to Queensland to a, 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 a the, the Bowen Basin where there's a lot of coal mining, and I I photographed up there. And I thought maybe my project would be about these kind of mining communities, and it just it, it just started to expand. And then I then I started engineering a few assignments which would kind of, you know, pay the way and get me out there working. Um, so I did like a, you know, a big road trip for the New York Times. Then I did a, uh, th- like through the through the outback. And then I did a, a, a drought story in Queensland and New South Wales for Time Magazine. And all that work started to, to sit together in a way. And as I started putting all that work together and kind of trying to construct a narrative out of it, I realized that uh, it was not really a wasn't a specific story, but it was a much broader kind of reflection on the interior of Australia and the colonial mm. legacy of Australia. Mm. Talk a little bit more about this colonial legacy there, and then and, and and what the sort of um, angle is as far as the project goes. So, Australia has. You know, Australia is an incredibly ancient land. Well, we live in an incredibly ancient planet, but in the space of 232 years, is it now? Um, the landscape of this country has been changed immensely by um, by colonisation. Um, and that came with uh, a pretty severe persecution of the indigenous nations that were here. Um, or the indigenous countries, we say, actually. Nations is, I guess, more applicable to American Indians uh, or Native Americans. Um, So it's a reflection on that, and I think I'm interested in reflecting on how this landscape has changed physically and culturally um, because that is my history in a way. I am the the product of Anglo settlers um, 
who have come to this country and and while my, my while my ancestors weren't uh, d- direct colonizers and they came a few generations after that I'm, I, it's still very much kind of part of my history and and, and the ownership of that land um, in pastoralism is linked to my family history and I, I feel like I need to understand that for self myself sorry um, mm-hmm. I need to understand that for myself and in a and in a way that's me kind of reconciling my own uh, my own position in this world my own kind of spirituality if you like um yeah and i guess there's also partly an apology in there too for the yeah for the way this nation's been treated and the way indigenous people have been treated yeah and now there are quite i imagine every every time i've ever sort of heard anyone talking about working on projects that involve you know the sort of aboriginal indigenous populations that um it's a difficult one for you as a kind of white Australian to to get yeah. access to is it is it very challenging to establish any trust or to break down that sort of uh, reluctance that that you come across when you're sort of trying to work in those populations yeah there's there's definitely a cultural barrier um, when working in um, indigenous communities um, and you know I'm, I, I, I to be honest I'm not totally sure i've kind of cracked that code of you know how i make meaningful work in those places it's something that i really uh need to uh work out actually over the next kind of six to twelve months um because i you know as a representative of kind of like white australia if you like um it it, the, the power dynamic is is quite unequal often when i'm photographing people who are living in impoverished circumstances so you know, it's I, it's it's a funny one. I mean, I, I, I'm very mindful of the fact I can't go out with a camera and make portraits of people or depict people in a way that kind of stigmatizes or further steepens any kind of negative perceptions that have existed um, within mm. Australia. So. Mm. I'm not sure I'm answering this question or even have the answer to it, but it's something yeah, that's no, kind of it's it's an ongoing part of the process of how do I photograph Indigenous Australia. Yeah. Um, yeah. I one of the ideas I have actually is earlier this year I went to the U.S. Uh, Mexico border and I crossed into Mexico at a point uh, back in uh, June where there was a huge surge of uh, migrants coming across the border and um, I took a medium format film camera and a cable release like a 20-foot cable release, and I let migrants do self-portraits. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I, you know, there was still a lot of kind of authorship that I kind of had in constructing and directing that whole thing, the, 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 the gesture of enabling them to actually have control of the moment of capture um, I think was empowering in a way. And I th- when I finish that project, I think I'm going to incorporate a bit of that into the way I work with Indigenous communities in mm. Australia. Yeah, and then as you say, you're giving the subject um, some agency, and it becomes more collaborative. Yeah, ex- exactly, and I think there's yeah. something to be said for that agency. Um, yeah, but the other the other angle, it seems, is it's it's an environmental story in a way. It's about climate change to some extent, or or am I just making that up? I don't know if you've managed to sort of meld those two very important kind of uh, themes together in some way. Yeah, it it um it is a story about climate change, but funnily enough, that wasn't 
the total intention when I set out to make this work. Um, the intentions were the one that I that I mentioned, um, you know, earlier in this conversation. Yeah. But you know, climate change has become such uh, a, a pressing and critical topic for us all to be discussing, and the places that I am photographing are impacted uh, significantly by climate change. You know doing this doing this personal project it's you know i'm there's droughts there's fires um there's a landscape that is being reshaped by climate change so even though it wasn't the it was the intention to go out and kind of reflect on australia as a nation climate change is intrinsic to that so i've ended up in this sphere of photographing climate change as well and 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 other people have tended to attach climate change to the to the project yeah. more than I have myself. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's partly because you did also did um, the the project with you know about the about the it was more directly about that, but it was it was a thing for, for yeah, like you I, say I, than you exactly. Magazine. I did the one. I did one uh, Time Magazine cover story about drought specifically, yeah. and that kind of fed into it. And you know, but you know, these terrible bushfires that have been going on in Australia and all that. I mean, it's it's a place that's being. It's almost like a litmus paper for the rest of the planet in a way australia as far as uh, those things are going and um and it's uh, australia i kind of i don't know why i think that the australia somehow have the idea that australia would be sort of leading the way in some respect in terms of their sort of uh, their their action on uh, on environmental issues but they're not they're doing quite badly as far as uh, other countries in relation yes to other no we're, we're doing terribly we're one of the uh largest exporters of of coal um we also you know the 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 carbon footprint kind of per household is huge nowhere we're we're doing very badly out Mm. here um are you relatively pessimistic um about um the future as far as that goes i'm i'm incredibly pessimistic about it um in terms of the you know what hope we have for actually making any significant uh changes that will you know prevent catastrophe basically I mean, yeah, the future is the science is 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 scary. Um, you know, when you look at it, it's hard not to be kind of overwhelmed by it uh, mm. because the prognosis is 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 you know it's dire. Um, mm. And regardless of our you know our carbon emissions, just population growth on its own is yeah. like how do we yeah. how do we all how are we all going to live on this planet without capping population at some point we haven't even got to that conversation yet you know we're just, no, we're just right, focused yeah. on greenhouse gases right now but what yeah. about just to, we uh, triaging the problems <laughs> yeah i know that's right yeah, yeah that's a very good so, point um but but you know um i i feel sad for the the planet because we kind of like you know we're destroying this this thing that has given life to us um but I think humans are resourceful too, so we will um, we will overpopulate the planet and uh, consume the resources, and this planet will turn into a hot, polluted place. But we will also probably develop the science to to live like that, and also perhaps start to live in other parts of our. Our solar system. So yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> yeah, it happens. Science On that note, films have a habit of coming true. Yeah. Well, that's it. I always say, you know, I, I, I I've looked into this um, in, in great detail by watching a Matt Damon film, and I can, I can say, char- 
categorically that Mars is a shit planet for us to be living on. So, you know, this is the only one, really, that we, could, uh, we can be happy on. Well, so, um, Australia is a little like Mars. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> Well, I'd be it'd be interesting. It'd be fascinating to sort of see how things progress with 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 the the project. And and um, I guess loose joints have sort of, in a way, they've sort of um, said yes to um, to work that hasn't even been shot yet. In a way, that's a great sort of um, sign of of faith in in you. I mean, obviously, you have actually got stuff that you've been working on, but it seems like yeah. the, the a lot of it's going to be done. You know, in the next twelve months, as you say. Yeah, I mean. There's there's a lot more. I've shot a lot more work than uh, than is in my kind of yeah. You know, tight you've shown yeah. twenty thirty photo web edit whatever it is. Um, so you know it came out of a conversation with Lewis and Sarah at Loose Joints, and they wanted to look back at everything that I've sh- that I've shot, and they did look back at everything. Um, and when they looked back at everything, they felt like I have enough for a book. Um, mm. So they committed to the project, but I was actually like. I need to keep shooting, so I wasn't prepared to do the book out of what I've already shot. Um, in my mind, uh, I needed to make more work um, mm-hmm. to get it to the to the the point to get the narrative to the point that I feel like would be significant and strong and 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 really kind of encapsulates the story that I'm trying to tell. Yeah. Yeah. So they have well, seen it. I'm just trying to make it better. <laughs> of course, yeah, of course, yeah. Because you know, once you know it's going to be um, pu- published uh, in a book forevermore, you want to you want to make sure that you you know do justice to that. And um, exactly, once once you publish a book, that thing is there forever. So you know, well, as long as the human race survives, at least. So. Yeah, of course, yeah. But you know, there's also yeah, that's there's a kind of work ethic there, which I think is kind of characteristic of of you that um, you know you want to give it your all, really. Yeah, we've we've got to talk about Afghanistan. This is this is the place that you are kind of probably most closely associated with, and it's the story that you're you've been working on for so long. And I guess you and your your cohort of of, of colleagues who you know have all spent many. Um, weeks and months there um, are reflecting on the place now, especially you know post withdrawal and the aftermath of that total shit show. I think is probably the technical term um, <laughs> as as far as the way that that was all handled. I'm wondering about what you know what your thoughts are, um, generally speaking, as far as you know Afghanistan and and you know whether you have any optimism for the future. Yeah, I um, yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. I've I've felt very conflicted about it, especially you know during the kind of fall of all the provincial capitals, and then when Kabul fell, I felt very, kind of very unsettled, and uh, it did inspire a bit of cynicism in me, if I was honest, um, and it made me reflect on my work in a way that uh, was perhaps negative. I started to wonder why you know, what was the validity of all that work and what was the validity of that international presence and, in, or, and invasion and that occupation for so long. It just felt hard to fathom that the amount of money got spent that it did, the billions of dollars, and mm-hmm. here we were, you know. No, no further no, down the road. No further down the road. You know, at least the Russians left some good infrastructure, you know. Um, but I can't say that that even happened out of this. Everybody just took the money and invested it in kind of villas in Dubai. 
Um, so, you know, I, I felt very deeply sad about the whole thing and, and also very concerned about, you know, the people in Afghanistan and a lot of friends that I made there over the years. I mean, you know, not that it's totally positive, but the Taliban have been pretty moderate since they have come in, which, you know, um, everyone was a bit unsure how that was going to, to play out. And, you know, they've been incredibly moderate compared to a, a possible alternative that mm. um so you know in a way I, I i feel hopeful for for the future of afghanistan given the way the taliban have um behaved since they got in there i mean obviously they've started they have had a few crackdowns on you know female education and you know people love to talk about these kind of key things because they're always kind of in a way, things that kind of justified the occupation, you know. But, you know, Afghanistan needs, it needs to be an autonomous country in a 20-year occupation, you know, being fed kind of democracy and human rights out of the barrel of a gun didn't work for it. Um, and I think that, uh, I think ultimately it's a positive thing that the US and the, you know, other, and NATO countries left. And I think that country needs to work it out on its own. And I think it needs to have yeah, some I mean, form of homegrown governance because pop-up yeah. governance was never going to work in that place and it never has before. Mm. Yeah, I'm wondering if whether, you, you know, it seemed even from the early t days of you being there that it was inevitable that nothing, that this wouldn't actually work, this plan to sort of go in and fix the place, you know? Did it seem inevitable in a way that it would end up this way? I was always sceptical. Yeah, I never thought that the, the mission would work. Um, and that's because, you know, you had the whole counterinsurgency uh, plan that was, you know, that McChrystal and Petraeus brought to Afghanistan from Iraq, ultimately, was... Uh, it didn't work, you know, it mm. just didn't work. And there were so many fundamental things that those plans overlooked uh, that were inherent to Afghan culture. Um, they overlooked tribal structures. Uh, they overlooked local allegiances. Yeah, it just, it, it, it never worked to, you know, take a, a northerner and put a police badge on them and send them to the south into a different ethnic area and let them govern those people. Um, mm -hmm. So there were so many things like that which alienated uh, the international presence more than um, endeared them. When you first went, I think you've mentioned that, you know, you were naive um, at that time. How naive were you on a scale of 1 to 10, do you think, on reflection? Well... You've scale. never been to, <laughs> yeah. Like I mean, you, you, it was your first real experience of of you know of conflict and of of uh, you know kind of unstable um, place to work, a kind of hostile environment. Yeah, were you I kind of? A, I guess there's a yeah. few levels of uh, naivety. I mean, you know, I, I, I you know, I was a middle class, educated young man, so I, I, I had a, I had a like an intellectual framework for what I was getting myself into. But I think the experience of war, I, you know, you just can't, you just don't know what that is. No one can know what that is. It doesn't matter how many, you know, books of, of conflict you've read or how many films you've seen about war. I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's something else. It's a different animal and it's a different beast. And I don't, yeah, I, I thought that I, I kind of knew what, maybe what it would be, but I, I really didn't. And it's... Um, 
But do you think that you thought that your pictures could, I think you even said it, you know, you thought your pictures might be able to impact foreign policy and that kind of thing. So that, I guess, on reflection seems naive now, but the time maybe, you know, was a reasonable thing for someone in your position yeah, to think. I, I was definitely green. I was young, I was idealistic. I was, you know, a few years out of art college and... You know, I had drunk the Kool-Aid of photojournalism can influence the course of foreign policy, as you just said. Um, I believed a, a photograph, uh, you know, could change, you know, could cause an intervention or could, you know, inspire empathy in a way that would, you know, cease atrocity um, in various forms. So... So, yeah, I, I really believed in the power of photojournalism. And, you know, let me add, Ben, I, I still do. You know, I think mm-hmm. I think at this point in my career I might I reflect on it more and I, I maybe write with perhaps too much cynicism sometimes. Um, and I talk about how my work kind of hasn't had an impact. But I think what happens is, as a practitioner, is you get very close to the work and sometimes you hope that the, it has more impact. But obviously, you know, being a, a storyteller, or a journalist, um, or a writer, or an artist for that matter, um, you know, it, it's a whatever those results are, are very uh, they're qualitative, you know. Yeah. So yeah. there's never there's never really di- direct results to any of it. But I still think, even though, you know, Afghanistan ended the way it did, I still believe all the work that was made um, of that recent conflict that recent stage of conflict in that country i think that work was still kind of critical and important and um if none of that work had existed it could have ended worse in a way any the, the that history could be different yeah, um of course yeah and you I never think, know of course yeah and we are and the people that weren't there understand that conflict in a way which might mm. prevent future conflict so it all becomes part of this kind of complicated web of Mm-mm storytelling that's interconnected yeah i mean i think that process of becoming disillusioned you know when you've been in there on the ground and you you know kind of get to understand the complexities of everything is is, is just you know kind of par for the course for people who have um, done the kind of work that you've done but i think you said that you saw that instead of negating the war that your work was actually reinforcing it and that that must have felt really shit, you know, to to to, to experience that. And wh- you yeah. know, when did that when did that disillusionment start to sort of set in yeah. for you? Was there a particular no. event or moment? Yeah. So I guess I guess we need to kind of I, I guess we pull this conversation apart. You know, I, I guess you know, not I I don't believe all the work that I did reinforced the mm-hmm. industrial military complex. Um, but the work that I did embedded with US troops, I started to feel like it did. It started to, it didn't matter matter whether I made it uh, negative pictures or, uh, and let, let me uh, unpack that a little bit, whether I made pictures of soldiers that look like heroes or soldiers that look like they were kind of, you know, downtrodden, disillusioned grunts. Both those images I felt like somehow reinforced the idea of uh, a noble service person. Um, whether they were army or marines or some other branch of the military or male or female. Um, and that that became hard to stomach. I really started to, to wonder what the point was of going out and risking my own life on an embed and making pictures of soldiers on patrol when I don't feel like they were having a positive impact. Um, you know, I, I, 
I remember getting emails from, uh, you know, military wives um, thanking me for my service, for what I had done and telling the story. And, you know, in my mind, I used to hate getting these emails because it was like, I want to make pictures that people don't like. I want people to see these soldiers in Afghanistan to be like, you know, let's pull out, bring the troops home, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, but they had the opposite. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I suppose in the way in which um, a lot of the imagery that was coming out of Vietnam had that had that kind of impact, you know, where, yeah, people were shocked, uh, you know, to be seeing that in their newspaper at the breakfast table and uh, exactly. the American public. I mean, you know, the, the work of, you know, Don, uh, uh, Philip Jones Griffiths or, you know, Tim mm. Page or... Mm. David Burnett, like, you know, that's the kind of work in a way that inspired me to be a photographer and somehow kind of, you know, communicate socially in a, in a way which, you know, changed uh, the course of, you know, political decisions for the better. Um, mm-hmm. but it, it felt really hard to, to, to see that in the work that I was doing in Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, it seems like perhaps, in, you know, part of the process of that, uh, disillusionment that you, that we were talking about is that you've kind of it feels like you shift the emphasis very much towards portraiture uh, at some point in in your in your career and you've done a lot of portraits and I'm wondering if was that a deliberate attempt I suppose to kind of address some of that disillusionment and that kind of uh, ambiguity that that you feel with you know shooting the sort of more um, predictable documentary uh, re- kind of yeah. reportage type stuff. Yeah, I, th- I think that shift is a. It's, it was kind of the confluence of a couple of things. Um, one is I, I felt like I started to uh, just personally and creatively feel a bit um, bored by making uh, reportage work and and more conventional photojournalism. Well, I think that work is incredibly important. It was more just a. A personal journey I had with that as a kind of visual language um, so I and I think that's just because I've been working like that for so long and I, I I felt like I needed to evolve to stay interested in a way um, and try new things the other thing was I think I was always a portrait photographer so when I very and I'm gonna do a post about this in a few weeks actually um, when I when I got my when I went off to art college and would give was given my you know I had never hadn't even looked at photojournalism yet I didn't have a an understanding of visual languages and I didn't have an understanding of documentary photography um, but very early in that art school experience I was sent out to do a, an assignment by one of my lecturers and I made portraits that was my just inherent response with a camera to the world was to make portraits of people um, so I think at some point in my career after and you know obviously after I'd done that assignment I kind of I, I become kind of learned in documentary photography and then I, I went out to work professionally and I kind of spent, you know, a decade working as a, as a photojournalist. And at some point I just kind of reverted back to what was my inherent response yeah, to the world with a camera and that was making portraits. Come back to your roots in a way, in yeah, a way, then, in a sense. Yeah, I came back to my roots. Um, and, um, I also like the idea of, um, of staging people. Uh, and lighting it and and approaching uh, stories in a way that is a bit more conceptual than than mm. following a story and recording you know the decisive moment if you like mm. Um, mm. I like the I like the intervention 
Have you had to learn how to light portraits as you've gone along, or was that something that you kind of got your head around quite quite early on? Because you know, it's it's notable that you know it's obviously a key skill set that you um, have acquired at some point, and not not all of us um, ever kind of get our heads around that stuff, especially if you're you know a documentary photographer by by nature and you tend to work with just you know available light and all that kind of thing. What what has been your process as far as learning the ropes with lighting portraits and that kind of thing? So when I was art college, I um, I I did a double major for my first two years, and I did a lot of studio work. So I had a I had a foundation of you know the principles of lighting and and working in a studio um and i'd also had a period of assisting advertising photographers oh um, okay that's a good during, learning curve during my art school kind of years um and actually almost went down that road i had one of the guys i was assisting who wanted me to leave art college and 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 give up my dreams of being a photojournalist and become his first full-time assistant and i was like it was one of those fork in the road moments where i'm like do i become an advertising photographer mm. in sydney or do i of course yeah. i didn't do that um but um, but you know all that information kind of lay dormant really because I was never interested in really shooting in a studio or understanding lighting. It was just something that I kind of did at art college. Um, but then when I started playing with the portraiture, I actually very sneakily went out and started assisting photographers again, um, mm. oh, advertising photographers and portrait photographers, just to kind of like get refresh in a way mm. and, and just develop that kind of just to develop my studio language, you know, because it, yeah. it is a language, like knowing what all the modifiers are and knowing yeah, how yeah. light kind of works and, you know, what what light shaping tools do to light. So you, so were, I, you were really uh, prepared to sort of embrace that kind of beginner mindset all over again, which is, a, which is I think, is a laudable uh, thing. I, re- you know? I really was. I was like a mid-career established photojournalist and all of a sudden I was like, you know, kicking it with assistants on, on yeah. sets. You know, yeah. um, and those Brilliant. assistants taught, taught taught me so much, and I only did a, you know, I only did a few, but um, it was enough to kind of you know to teach. Mm. But I learned something every time I get on a set too. You know, mm. every time I light something, I learn something about lighting. Yeah. Well, well, let's let's take a couple of examples and and sort of look at them a little bit. The one I wanted to talk about was the the Afghans um, that you did a, a a series of portraits on, and and you had a particular um, approach which I think was very interesting. And you shot um, at night in the dark, um, and I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through, you know, those decisions and and why you made them. Um, it was partly wasn't just about lighting and technique it was about um creating a certain um i suppose a certain response from the subjects yeah exactly i mean and i think that's always the case it's never really about the lighting or a trick you know it's always about you know what is the what is the image i want to create what's the story i want to tell and how do i how do i do a trick which you know results in that story um so with the with with the afghans um and you know this came out of obviously a a sense of disillusion of doing embedded work with the military in Afghanistan like we're chatting about earlier Mm. Um, and I wanted to make a story which um, reflected on the civilian population and the plight of people in Afghanistan Um, and I thought a lot about how to do that and obviously there'd been a there'd been a plethora of images already made in Afghanistan Um, and I I thought driving around at night and finding people and photographing them in the dark and like kind of catching them 
so to speak. Freezing people kind of unaware um, with a flashlight would be an interesting way to kind of to show Afghans kind of suspended in this kind of dark space. And to me, that could be uh, a, a metaphor for the war, but also an insight into the, the individuals kind of caught in this, you know, big geopolitical conflict. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that, w- that was the idea. And, you know, and it was a very simple lighting setup, um, but it was a simple lighting setup that, you know, reinforced this idea of freezing someone at night catching someone in this dark space and you know i didn't have a proper lighting assistant my translator would hold a small canon speed light um and we generally speak to people in the dark and often i couldn't see their expressions i would just be kind of like lining them up in the in the frame and the speed light would go off and i would just kind of shoot these people but it ended up you know i mean in a way it's kind of like a happy accident you know i couldn't control every moment because i couldn't see their expression but that was part of the process which made it successful and why everybody ended up looking quite kind of natural and suspended and and kind of just like gazing unaware in a direction was Mm. because of that process because of that technical process yeah yeah and it really really worked and then the other thing you've become quite sort of um expert at is the challenge of um doing portraits where you can't identify uh, or the, where the people that, that you're photographing um, can't be identified for reasons of obviously their personal protection. And, and um, uh, you, 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 yeah, you kind of almost become the sort of uh, the, the, the expert at that. But um, I wanted to talk about the, the bombs they carried, the, this project you did about these young girls who uh, in uh, Nigeria had been essentially kidnapped and co-opted by Boko Haram to become suicide bombers and, and you won a world press for that. Was it was it the whole set or was it just a single image that you won the world press for? It was the whole set. Yeah, yeah it was like it was the, the, portrait the, series. the series. Yeah, yeah. And one, um, was, one, one out of the series was nominated for Photo of the Year. Right. Um, yeah. But with that one, you you know, that challenge that you had obviously going in that you couldn't, show them what what how did you kind of come to um the decision of how to shoot it and how how sort of you know how much um thought did you have to put into it it couldn't kind of going in can you sort of talk through that uh process a little bit for me yeah i mean well going into it i knew that i i couldn't identify anybody so I, I started looking at well the first thing was I, I wanted to make a set of pictures which celebrated these young women because they had these extraordinary journeys and they'd all you know done something incredibly brave and showed an incredible amount of resilience to kind of defy their captors and defy their pro- defy their programming um, and I, I, I was just incredibly impressed by that um, resilience and, and conviction in a way uh, so I and I didn't want to make a set of pictures which showed kind of like poor marginalized victims. I wanted to show pictures which felt powerful. Um, so to do that, I looked at um, I looked at a lot of uh, and I, I don't have a, a specific example, but I, I I trolled the internet for fashion photographs where you couldn't see um, the faces of a model. Um, and there was a lot of kind of powerful posture in that. Um, so that became, that became a reference. Um, I also found a, um, 
a painter from Belgium called Mikhail Boromans that had made these beautiful paintings. Um, and there was uh, several of them uh, where his subjects, uh, and I, to be honest, I'm not even sure if they're real subjects or imagined subjects, but they had their backs to the camera and, and they were women. Um, and there was a, I remember seeing seeing this particular painting of Boromans and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. I'd have to have a, have a look, but it might even be an untitled actually. Um, mm. But there was such an incredible mood in these these paintings even though there was no facial expression and i was like wow like so so he had done it he'd cracked that code he'd he'd made a portrait of somebody where you couldn't see the face yet in emitting all this information there was in uh they, they were steeped in this new kind of power so that was the that was the key for me was was knowing that Boromans could do that and all of a sudden when i uh, when i approached it and i got back to nigeria it was like they need to be powerful by admitting information. So kind of in a way that just became the thing I leaned into and, and the thing that gave it strength because they became mysterious all of a sudden. So instead mm. of feeling like I, we were missing stuff, um, by making them look mysterious, um, it actually prompted more kind of, I hope, um, imaginative kind of reflection for the viewer because you wonder so much more. You know, you're not yeah. given all the answers there's, there's a world in there that you have to go in and kind of create yourself. And obviously yeah. the, the combination of text and photography was very important in that because, you know, you read these kind of small quotes from the subjects and you know that they all exist within this large narrative of having these kind of horrific traumatic experiences and, and that, that framing of the work um, made them even feel more kind of powerful and mysterious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you did something similar with the Hong Kong protesters as well. Mm. Um, Maybe that came as a result of you having uh, so successfully um, kind of, you know, risen to that challenge um, with the Boko Haram uh, girls, who, as you say, amazing, amazing, brave uh, young women. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, 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 the Hong Kong protesters thing, again, that was a, became a, a cover story uh, on time. But yeah, it was a similar, it was the same challenge that you had to, to, to face there where you couldn't really show anyone. Yeah, it was. It was. Um I mean, it, yeah, and there was definitely, like, I think an evolution in the way that I worked technically from that Nigeria series to, to, to the Hong Kong protesters. Um, the, the, in a way, the Hong Kong protesters, uh, those portraits were, were more um, set up and staged and, in a way, collaborative because it was my initial plan to photograph the protesters in all their protest gear. Um, so, you know... When, I, when we asked the protesters to come to the studio, we said, bring all your stuff that you take to the protest and dress up like you, like you are when you're protesting. Right. Um, and, I, you know, I started photographing people and all of a sudden I just had these kind of like, you know, gladiators covered in helmets and, you know, plastic shields on their arms and all this kind of stuff. And, and you couldn't connect to them, you know. Um, there was no kind of way in. They could have, I, I could have put a mannequin in the studio and covered it in gas masks and... yeah black clothes and you know so it was hard to really get to the humanity in the protesters so you know i think after i photographed the first couple i i realized that i actually had to strip all their protest gear off them and then slowly build it back up which you know really required trust from the protesters because they were mm. very nervous about that um about revealing themselves and being identified but i managed to convince the ones that i photographed and they 
would just show me what they had and then we would just perhaps use one element of what they had i mean as a photographer you need a lot of kind of confidence in your judgment in order to make that kind of a call which i think is uh is is what kind of jumps out to me that you know you i guess because you are experienced you 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 know you don't mind uh doing something or intervening in quite a sort of radical way a lot of less experienced photographers would be uh, i think probably too nervous or reluctant um to to do something quite that bold yeah i think you know i think once you start kind of departing from you know more conventional photojournalism to portraiture like i've done you you in a way have to think like a a director like a film director mm. and you have mm. to put you know a hat on for all the people that would be in your team um so you're a you're a director of photography you're operating a camera and you're you know you're framing and you're making decisions about focal lengths but then you're also like a kind of set designer as well um and you know you're choosing where to sit somebody and you're also the gaffer because you're lighting and you're like you're kind of doing all these things to really construct uh construct a story out of all these Mm -hmm. different elements so you know the more i work with portraiture the more i start to grasp that actually and realize that it's not really just about the photography it's about um, it's about all this other stuff. It's about your communication with the human sitting in front of the camera. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's about your ability to conceptualize the light and how that the quality of that light serves the story that you're telling. And then, you know, choosing the camera technology that also serves that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and addressing a wardrobe or a background uh, and, and kind of, you know, it's, it's a very simple, minimal set most of the time compared to a film production, of course, but... You know, yeah, you have to be conscious of it and still make decisions about that set and, and what you're constructing and where mm-hmm. to sit sit that subject or person. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about one other thing that you um, d- uh, did, a story about some um, veterans with PTSD who were on an ayahuasca uh, retreat. That was fascinating to me, and I saw that on, on your Substack thing. And... Um, I think you, the the person who commissioned it, you know, knew that that was right in your wheelhouse. Um, I, I know you've had some personal experience with ayahuasca, and I don't know if the editor was aware of that, but I was really interested to ask you about that, if you don't mind talking about it. Um, well, how did that come to be that you had uh, your own uh, experience with it? Because I know there's a sort of the PTSD angle, which is what these vets were trying to deal with, comes into play to some extent you, you i don't know whether you think that you've had some ptsd but as a as a conflict photographer i wouldn't be at all surprised so i'm wondering you know how that all unfolded yeah i mean i i uh i don't have or i've never been diagnosed with clinical ptsd um but that doesn't mean you know and, and you know I, i'm not I, I don't wish to overindulge in this because i i feel like my mental health is in a in a, in a very good place but you know traumatic experiences are, are hard to swallow you know like mm. and this is one of the things that i never really grasped as a kind of a young naive photographer like you know ambitiously running off to war like you know once you have put yourself in a very kind of dark situation and you've seen acts of war i mean you have to live with that you know that stuff sits heavy inside you um and it's with you forever in a way and you have to kind of process those experiences um and i definitely have a lot of i do have a lot of colleagues that i think have struggled to process those experiences and for periods of my career i i have as well um but you know that would be normal um 
in my opinion it would be it would be um it would not be normal if you saw horrific things and they didn't affect you i mean that's kind of that's you know that would be unhealthy um but anyway the the ayahuasca project that the new york times commissioned me to do so i'd i'd um i'd had some experiences um with ayahuasca plant medicine and uh they had been they had came from um an old friend of mine that had had really struggled with his his mental health um and had been committed to an institution well sorry committed to hospital at one point and he had you know kind of healed himself with um with kind of psychedelic treatment if you like and I'd watched his life change so profoundly and uh he's a very close friend of mine he um he invited me to participate in in some ayahuasca with him and and I found I I felt like it was positive for me I felt like you know I think I think and the reason I think it was positive was me because it's a very um it's a very grounding experience it can be it can be a traumatic experience in its own right because it's a very it brings up a lot of um stuff which feels very real that you have to deal with but it's a very kind of grounding humbling experience and it makes you feel kind of very i don't know connected to the continuum of time if you like and it's Mm -hmm. it's it's almost like a religious experience and in a way that 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 grounding kind of uh helps you kind of move away from your trauma or process past trauma i think at least that's Mm. the way it worked for me anyway my my editor at the new york times um who i was a friend and a colleague he he knew that i had um i'd shared that i had participated in in ayahuasca ceremonies with him and had kind of said how much i felt like it had helped me process my own conflict experience so when this assignment came across his desk at the new york times he kind of called me up and was like you know this is a this is a story for you. It's like veterans and ayahuasca. He's like, who else can yeah, yeah. do this? <laughs> so, um, and it, it was an incredible experience. So I went to Costa Rica with eight veterans, all that had diagnosed uh, PTSD. Um, some of their PTSD was incredibly severe. Um, you know, one one guy had had multiple suicide attempts. Um, most of these, most of the 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 veterans had had you know been treated with. Um, uh, antidepressants prescribed by Veterans Affairs and had then kind of fallen through the cracks of the Veterans Affairs system in America and you know the mental the mental health thing in in veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan is you know it's a epidemic in 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 the states there's you know there's there's hundreds and thousands of these these people um, and the suicide rate is incredibly high so um, it was interesting to go and see how people like this would engage with with psychedelics as a way um, of healing themselves and you know to be honest I haven't kept up with uh, some of the people that I went with but from what I'm told through the, the veteran that organized the trip it, it, they're all doing really well and it was a positive experience for them mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but you know I did witness in that week um, of ayahuasca ceremonies you know big burly tattooed you know, special forces vets, you know, by the end of the week were like, you know, telling their deepest, darkest, deepest, darkest secrets in the sharing circles and breaking down in tears and kind of laughing about the fact they'd never told their wives these kind of stories. So it was a, it was a really incredible transformation to watch in a short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a very sort of 
topical thing. Uh, there's so much research going into psychedelics as treatment for PTSD and addictions and all kinds of things. And it seems like there there's a, there's a huge amount of uh, very kind of encouraging uh, data that's coming coming out of all that. So it's a really uh, interesting kind of area at the moment, I think. And a lot of people are, are yeah. Sort of there's there's a lot of positive research coming out of um, some of the universities in, in America right now. You know, John Hopkins yeah. is doing doing a lot of research. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and there's a place here in London as well, which is another major centre for, for yeah. that. So there's kind of a couple of different places. It's fascinating. But Ayahuasca, I mean, as, I don't know if you've ever done any other psychedelics. You're going straight in there. It's quite a powerful one. It's not like, you you know, I imagine there's a sort of progression whereby, you know, you start at the nursery slopes. Maybe it would be psilocybin, you know, a, bit, a few magic mushrooms, and then you kind of work <laughs> up. You kind of work up to these very powerful ones. But Ayahuasca, you've gone straight in there with something quite, potentially, I imagine, yeah, quite uh, life-changing. I've never had experience of it, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of it yeah yeah it's um it's kind of revelatory stuff i uh you know it's i mean i don't think it needs to be for everybody you know but if Absolute, you've got yeah. something that is feeling a bit unresolved i think it is probably a better solution than taking antidepressants mm, almost certainly yeah yeah and um yeah i think it, the guy as you say the 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 project is um called the heroic hearts project that's that's the guy who actually runs these retreats for the for the veterans um, a, a veteran himself i'm assuming yeah he he was a he was a veteran that had ptsd and was prescribed antidepressants after serving in afghanistan and doing a few tours and was miserable and he discovered ayahuasca um so founded this non-profit um so he he, he gets private funding and finds vets that have kind of you know, struggling with their journey after post-war, post-conflict, and and takes them off and does these workshops in various kind of places. You know, it's it sounds totally wacky. You know, you've got these kind of like people that have served at the kind of pointy end of like American diplomacy in like theaters of war, and then they're, you know, sitting around with with shamans who have been practicing, you know, mm. or whose tribes have been practicing this kind of plant medicine for thousands of years, and and. Uh, yeah, it's an yeah. interesting pairing, but it's uh, it, it 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 works for people, mm. as far as mm. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, um, good luck with your last four days of quarantine. You're you're going to go from one extreme to another. You're going to go from being cooped up in a room to the vast expanse of uh, of the Australian outback to to go and explore and uh, and drive through. I imagine that's quite a that seems like quite a meditative experience i could imagine I, I think i'd probably quite enjoy that um although of course a very isolating one as well in some respects yeah thanks ben yeah it will be a transition i mean it's not going to be too abrupt i'm not gonna hop in yeah, the car right. and drive no, to no. the center of australia the day yeah. of my release from quarantine but, no um, I, I imagine not they will be very different experiences that's for sure but you know there's a lot of uh it's not too isolating out there i tend to spend a lot of time with with people um you know, really, I'm kind of photographing the humans that inhabit that landscape as much as I am the landscape. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited. But I'm excited to get out and complete the work. Before all that, you've got a new niche to meet. Is that is that what you said at the beginning? A, 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 a I new do. Edition? Yeah, I have a have a have a one year old or well, a niece that will be one a few days after my quarantine release. So excited to meet a new family member. Yeah. Um, settle back Fantastic. into Sydney a bit, and then I'll. Uh, 
pack the four-wheel yeah. drive and hit the road. Nice. Nice time of year to be there as well, where we're starting to the, – the onset of winter is uh, is uh, looming large here and you're the opposite. So, uh, yeah. Well, I, t- I timed my exit from New York City perfectly. The weather changed and we had a cold weekend and I got on a plane. <laughs> yeah, perfect, perfect. Thanks for chatting to me, Adam. It's been great. Ben, thanks for having me on. It was great to chat. Mm-hmm.